Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And we have a fantastic guest today. Her name is Heather Hying, and you may know Heather and her husband and collaborator, Brett Weinstein. Weinstein, excuse me. Um, is that correct, Weinstein? It's Stein. Stein, Weinstein. Thank you. I and yep. uh, pl- never hesitate to correct me. I always want to be corrected. Please, it makes me. Look I might better. not have if you hadn't already corrected yourself. Okay. <laughs> um, you all listening will, if you know their names, you may have first heard of them with the kerfuffle at Evergreen College, a liberal arts uh, college on the West Coast, um, that went berserk in. It was 2017, Heather. That's right. Yep. yep. Uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna retread over that territory. I'm not gonna make Heather recapitulate that whole thing. Uh, she's been asked to do that, I'm sure, a million times. What we're here to talk about today is their new book, which is called A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. And I'm just gonna show it to those of you here in the backstage on the screen. That's one of the benefits you get, by the way, uh, listeners in Radio Land. If you join and support us, you get to sit in and look at the behind scenes stuff before anybody else gets it. I this this book is easy to read first of all Uh, Mm. it's very easy to read but it took me longer because of course I wanted to take very careful notes and there were specific things that I wanted to look for and as you and I talked a couple months ago Heather and I said you know this is what I think I want to talk about but after I read your book that may change so and and of course I found a plethora of stuff to talk about that I had not thought about so Um, To give people an overview of the book, I would characterize it as this is an introduction um, for the intelligent lay reader to the concept of the fact that we are, we humans, like all other animals, are an evolved species. That means that we have been around in some form or another for millions of years, and we have been, I don't know if the right word is given, but we have developed and have inherited predilections, physical attractions, physical repulsions, emotional attractions, emotional repulsions, um, all sorts of ingrained inclinations that today in our hyper-modern, hyper-novel 21st century that looks very much unlike any environment in which we spent most of our evolutionary history, we are running around, and these are my words, not Heather's, but we are running around like chickens with our heads cut off, and we do not know what to do. And I believe that part of the reason we don't know what to do is we we moderns, we Western people, at least, um, We don't really truly understand what it means to be an evolved creature, and we have all sorts of fantasies about the kind of thing we are. We are not the kind of thing most of us think we are. (laughs) Yeah. That's 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 really right. well put. So yeah, how, would, how, how would you <laughs> how would you describe your book in the the um, I'll shut up now and let you take over the characterization. No, I mean, that was wonderful. There are a lot of ways to characterize the book. Um, yes, m- many most people, I would say, as you as you just said, do not know what kind of thing we are. And furthermore, what is it to be evolved? There's kind of a joke in academic biology circles that many people imagine that evolution stops at the neck. 
like, yes. okay, I get it. You know, um, you know, female hips versus male hips um, have to do with childbearing, but there can't possibly be any difference between the brains of men and women, right? And of course, that's not true. You know, of course, uh, as as humans, uh, of all of the things that have evolved the most and that make us most uniquely human, most of that lives in our brain. So one of the ways to characterize the book is, okay, we called it a hunter-gatherer's guide to the 21st century. And it's true. All of us were hunter-gatherers at some point in our history, something between, you know, 10 and 200,000 years ago. Uh, we were hunter-gatherers, and, you know, and probably longer ago than that. The 200,000 marker is just the moment at which we think we became fully modern anatomical humans. Okay. Obviously, we didn't have all of the, all of the cultural things that are, are true now, but that, that too has evolved. So, one, you know, one of the messages is it's all evolutionary. Whether or not it's anatomy or culture or, um, or brain or liver, it's, you know, it's evolved. And also, we retain pieces of our history no matter whether or not we like that. And so we could have called it a fish's guide to the 21st century because since we were fish, we're still fish. And no, that doesn't, isn't useful in most conversations that you have with most people to be thinking about that at that level, but it's, but it's true. And we can point to some of the truths of our fishy ancestry. And we could have called it a tetrapod's guide to the 21st century because having come onto land, we uh, have a number of things in our, with regard to our senses and our bodies that uh, only happened at the point that we tetrapods emerged onto land. We could have called it a mammal's guide to the 21st century, a primate's guide, a monkey's guide, an ape's guide. And then once we're in humans, sure, a hunter-gatherer's guide because that's sort of the that's the romantic idea that most people have in their heads. Like when, if, you, if you talk to someone about their diet and they're like, yeah, I'm doing paleo. Well, okay, what's the paleo and paleo diet? Oh, it's, right. it's like it, it's, the, it's the hunter-gatherers on the African savanna. Well, not only have we had a lot of evolution since we were hunter-gatherers, but there's also a lot of different ways to be a hunter-gatherer. There are hunter-gatherers in the Amazon. There are hunter-gatherers you know, in, in the Arctic, and they're not doing a whole lot of gathering there. A little bit sometimes, but you know they're more hunter than hunter gatherer, and they're of course places where you're more gatherer than than hunter. Like Dollar so, General, <laughs> like like Dollar General. <laughs> so you know, to what degree are we still hunter gatherers? We still have some of those, you know, some of those tendencies. Yes. And you know, frankly, I don't think we say this in the book, uh, but you know, what is this desire to shop? This desire to consume that so many people have? Um, that's picking up on some of these you know, ancient ways that were actually necessary for life. And now, you know, browsing at Dollar General, not necessary. Like, you don't need to spend your time there. You know, you could get in and get out for whatever it is that you actually do need. But almost everyone spends more time in some of these places of retail acquisition than they need to and feel worse afterwards and maybe tell themselves a story about why it was okay, but uh, probably would be doing better with their relationships and in their own heads and in their bodies if they if they succumbed to that less. So just to finish that thought before um, you say the next thing, um, we, we called it a hunter-gatherer's guide, but we could have called it an agriculturalist's guide because uh, anyone reading the book is downstream of the evolution of agriculture. Yes. Um, and we could have called it a post-industrialist's guide to the 21st century because we are, we are that now and we are living that. And because culture is evolutionary too, and it moves so much faster than the anatomical evolution, the physiological evolution, yes. uh, the changes in the brain at the, um, 
you know, at the level of the big pieces, like the frontal lobe is really, really big in humans, but at the level of neuronal connections, wow, that kind of brain evolution happens really, really fast. So um, evolution happens at all these different scales, and we retain pieces from our history no matter whether we like it or not. Yeah, and no matter whether we like it or not is is really the nub of many of these conversations because it we don't like it, by and large. We like yeah. it not. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, let me tell you a quick story about the first time I encountered this, um, we like it not phenomenon. I didn't know exactly what I was encountering then because I was young and, and I didn't know very much. Middle nineties, uh, I'm hanging out at a party with, uh, you know, I'm a freshman in college. I'm around college age and I'm hanging around with, uh, some older friends, uh, who are, uh, who were graduate, uh, graduate students. So, you know, they were about seven or eight older, uh, seven or eight years older than me. And in the humanities, these were people who were um, uh, philosophy of religion majors, that sort of thing. And conversation turned to issues of what men are like and what women are like. Um, And even I, I must tell you, everybody who's listening, I'm telling you a story that happened almost 30 years ago. Okay, It was happening then. This modern obsession with denying the reality of the fact that we are biological animals and we are evolved, including our psychology, this is not new. What you are seeing is, what is new is the explosion and the complete capture of that idea of of modern minds. But it has been brewing for a very long time. So I said something like... um, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something like, it makes sense to me that in a domestic situation, you want a balance, you want men and women in a domestic living situation, because frankly, and this was me at the time, it's not me today, but I don't think I was wrong about this. I said something like, women have a domesticating effect on male behavior. And if you take women out of that situation, you get a very different household all full of men um, than you would get in mixed sex. And my very good friend, uh, the, the reaction, the emotional reaction was immediate and visceral. And she turned to me very quickly and she didn't mean to be insulting to me, but this was her initial emotional reaction. You could hear the disdain. She said, you sound just like the sociobiologists. <laughs> yeah, the, and that is, that, is what, that is what we called, uh, what we today call evolutionary psychologists. Um, so I, I believe sociobiologist was a term more in vogue in the 70s. Is that right, Heather? Sociobiology was the name of a book written by E.O. Wilson to describe what he saw as um, the move. And it's bigger than psychology. It's all it's biology. And so, you know, evolu- I would say that EvoPsych, um, which tries to apply evolution to humans specifically, um, and, you know, I'll get myself in trouble with various evolutionary psychologists here, but I think it often falls flat uh, because it, it because it doesn't have the the deep perspective, the deep history perspective. Okay. Uh, so sociobiology, yeah, it's a term that kind of fell out of favor. But uh, I certainly when I was in college, just a few years before you were, 
um, we were still willing. Well, actually, I have an anecdote to match yours from yeah. just a few a few years before yours. Um, but from within the so-called disciplines where this where we we're supposed to be able to talk about this. So um, I was uh, I had I had been a literature major and I transferred schools and I had discovered evolutionary biology. Actually, Brett had given me um, a book by Dawkins and said, I think you're going to find some things to to enjoy here. Mm -hmm. And and I and I. Fell in. I fell in love with it, and and both of that's what both Which of us one was to it? do. It was the blind watchmaker. Oh, that that that's was that, that was the one that opened my mind for the first time. Yeah, and you know, I was at that point. I was as most young people, as all young people used to do, and I hope that most young people still are. But I think this is one of the things that's failing. I was searching for meaning. I was actively searching for meaning. I knew the things that I loved to do, some of them. I knew some of the things that I wanted to accomplish in the world, but I was looking for the meaning. And, you know, I had tried, I had tried Buddhism. I had like, I was, I was looking for all of these things. And, you know, that book sort of swept me into, oh, this is so much more explanatory than anything else that I have yet run into. And, and like Buddhism, frankly, it invites you to question everything. And so at the point that you start questioning part of the part part of it if it if it fights back and says you cannot question that then you're dealing with dogma then you're dealing with ideology yeah. you're not dealing with science you're not dealing with something that's actually open and and you know open to inquiry um but so i i tried to switch i like i said i'd been a literature major and but i already had too many credits i wasn't allowed to become a biology major at that point i, I just I, the university of california at santa cruz which is where i transferred to mm -hmm. said no you don't you have you have too much we're not going to let you stay that long, which is, I can't imagine a college saying that now, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to give you more money. No. Okay. Um, but I went to anthropology. So I ended up with a major uh, degree in anthropology because it's adjacent, you know, it's, it's, yes. it's supposedly, you know, the behavior of humans, the evolution of humans. And while I was more interested in non-human animal behavior than humans, I was interested in humans and it was adjacent. And frankly, it had so many fewer credits required that I could do my anthro major and take all this upper division bio. So I got to just like skip all of the sort of scut work that the bio major wanted me to do and start taking neuro and evolution of physiology and such, and then also do the anthro. And my, uh, my advisor in anthropology was a physical anthropologist who I, I will not name, but um, she taught the primatology course and uh, various other physical anthropology courses at University of California at Santa Cruz. And, you know, so anthro was sort of divided into four parts. There's cultural, there's archaeology, there's linguistics sometimes, and then there's physical, which is, you know, what is the physical evidence for past humans and evolution of, uh, evolution of humans through time? And what can we tell largely through bones about, uh, you know, the behavior? What can we infer through bones about the behavior, for instance, of, of past people? And so it relies heavily on things like sex differences, right? Yes. You, have to be, you, you have to be able to infer sex differences in osteology if you're going to do most of what physical anthropology does. And, um, and also primatology ends up showing up in physical anthropology for some reason rather than biology. But um, I walked into the first day of class in primatology, having already become um, pretty well versed in evolutionary biology because my uh, informal advisor at Santa Cruz was Bob Trivers, who's one of the yes. greatest living biologists and I had become his research assistant and so I was you know I was learning a ton over here from from Dr. Trevor's from Uncle Bob as he asked Brett and me to call him and I was also learning or I thought I was going to be learning 
physical anthropology and cultural anthropology. Mm -hmm. And the cultural anthropology actually at that point was fantastic. I walk into the first day of class in, in primatology, and there's a list of words on the board and terms, and they include things like uh, reciprocal altruism and reproductive success and sexual selection. And I think, oh, I know these terms. These are, these are fundamental terms in evolutionary biology. Reciprocal altruism uh, refers to uh, the tendency to uh, to return favors, basically. You know why? You know why? Why don't we see you know true altruism evolving where there's absolutely no possibility for a return on on a favor in in the world? Well, that is you know an unfortunate evolutionary truth. But the fact is that reciprocal altruism ex like allows us to sort of expand our world and go oh. If you have iterated interactions, if you're a social organism, as we are, as so many organisms are, and there's any chance of ever running into the person you're interacting with again, then you have the evolution of kindness and generosity and, you know, all of these things. So that's that's kind of what reciprocal altruism is. Sexual selection, of course, is, you know, the sort of counterpoint to natural selection. Um, how is it that evolution between the sexes can be different? Um, and, and does it ever run counter to what natural selection would be? And reproductive success just refers to, you know, what you know, what what are the things uh, that you do in order to be successful in reproduction, which of course is ultimately the goal of evolution. So these and a number of other terms were on the board, and I thought, oh, good. I sat down, and class started, and the professor began by saying, pointing to the words on the board, and saying, these are the terms that we will not use in this class. These are verboten. We really? don't do that here. We do not do that here uh, because this is sexist and uh, it doesn't abide by what we currently uh, believe about humans and human behavior. And so we will not be participating in that kind of dialogue in this class. That was in 1990, 1991. Oh, so, yes. Yes. So that was happening. That was happening then. And. You know, I think you, you you said this has been happening for you know thirty years. It has been. It's been happening. I do think that I it kind of went underground, right? It went underground, and but the the students in that class, I don't know any of them. I'm not. This isn't about any individuals. But I think that you know, to the degree that there were students in that class like me who went, "What? What is this? This doesn't make any sense. I'm going to learn what I can here, and also learn what I can about the social landscape that I seem to have landed into." Yep. Um, but some of the students went, "Oh yeah." cool, good, because, you know, reproductive success is bad, and that's sexist, and we definitely don't do that. And some of those people, presumably, maybe not in that class, but in classes across the U.S., across the West, went on to become the professors of today. Yes. This so, is a good, you know, yeah, it, 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 precisely. We're going to talk about that. This is a good place for us to take a break. We're going to come back after this. I want to remind listeners, or actually tell you, um, this is probably going to be a long conversation, so um, we're going to break this into several episodes. We're going to get into many different topic areas, uh, but uh, they will come out successively. So um, we're going to go to break, and we'll come back in just a minute. for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at 
disaffectedpod.substack.com or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. All right, welcome back. We're talking with Heather Hying, uh, co-author of A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life that she wrote with her husband, Brett Weinstein. And I wanted to, you know... We can't talk. I want to talk about absolutely everything in this book, but we cannot do that even if we take an entire two hours. So, um, as you know, Heather, one of the things that I'd like to spend some bit of time on, whether we do it in this segment or another one, is sex roles. Um, sex roles, what we today call gender roles, um, evolved psychology in men and women. Sex typical psychology uh, is something that this show is very concerned about. Um, and, you know, I believe, for example, that we are in a cultural position right now where the sex typical psychology is out of balance. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a multi-layered problem because, as you know, even suggesting in polite company, in many do, many domains in this country, suggesting in polite company that there is such a thing, well, it's not symmetrical. It is verboten to suggest that there is such a thing as female typical psychology. But I do not detect that it is verboten at all to offer that there is male typical psychology. Um, so first we have to get to the point where we're allowed to speak about these things. Um, but before we get into that, you know, I, I went through and I made notes about things that jumped out at me. And a lot of things jumped out at me. One of the things I like about this book is you are a very clear writer. You are very, very good at expository prose. This is exactly – you are the kind – you, you and Brett's book, this is the kind of book that one wants – as an introduction to a complicated professional field for intelligent lay people. You take this field in which you have immersed yourself for decades and make this immediately understandable in a very clear, unambiguous way to any person of normal intelligence. So it's a great, I mean, I know that in, in science, popularizers sometimes get short shrift from their colleagues, but as a popular uh, popularization of these concepts, it's absolutely successful. But you also salt it with this ornamentation and these turns of phrases that just tickle me. And I pulled a couple out. I pulled a couple out here. Um, so things like yeah, it is discussion of food preservation. Quote: We rot foods safely so they don't get the chance to rot dangerously. And I believe that was a discussion of things like fermentation um, of vegetables, you know, or or um, you know curing of cheese, these sorts of things. Another one in here. And this is a lesson in, this is how you, I, I, in the book, you began to introduce people to the concept <coughs> that some of the things you are inclined toward, the tastes, the smells, the tactile sensations, these are programmed into you. But evolution is, is a blunt instrument. It's not a fine-grained instrument. And so these things can be co-opted. They can be misled. Here's a good example. You write, do solvents smell good? <coughs> Unfortunately, many of them do. 
And this was a discussion of the fact that some of us love to sniff magic markers or gasoline. Do you remember, Heather, do you remember the scratch and sniff stickers when we were younger? Okay. (laughs) Do you remember the one with the gas pump, the happy gas pump? No. (laughs) I'm not making it up. I swear to God, I'm not making it up. It's this cartoon literally. Hey, I'm pumpy. Right? And you you scratch it and it smelled like the most beautiful. Now, gasoline does not smell like it used to. I grew up in Southern California between the time I was five and ten. And I know what the world smelled like then. And the gasoline then was mm, primo. It's not as good (laughs) anymore. (laughs) So let's see, that would have been, I don't remember exactly how old you were, that would have been like late 70s, early 80s? Uh, yeah, 80 to 84. Yeah. 80, 84, yeah. Um, I, well, I grew up in LA myself, so I remember how the gas smelled at that yeah. point. Yeah, <laughs> Everything and I, and I, I yeah, well, the, the smog was horrendous back in those days, absolutely horrendous. It's actually better now. Um, it is. But, but I do remember, I mean, the smell of gasoline is different. I think it's the disappearance of leaded gasoline. It's probably uh, other, other changes to it. But I remember the smell. I remember the smell of the street. Car exhaust used to smell differently before the emission standards. There were still a lot of cars from the 50s through the 70s on the Southern California roads. And uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm going down another path here. Um, the, also about smell. Here's another good example. I almost jumped out of my chair with joy when I saw you mention this. You know, uh, well, some listeners won't know, the career that I just ended, I spent 20 years as the director of a nonprofit whose mission was to educate people about what their options were when it came to buying and planning funerals so that they would not end up bankrupting themselves, which is very easy to do when you're in a time of grief. It's very easy to overspend. So, I became an expert on the American funeral industry from the consumer point of view. And I also became a legal expert and co-wrote a book, not a legal expert globally, but a legal legal expert on funeral and burial law as it relates to consumers, wrote a book about that, trying to put that into plain English for people. There's a whole raft of what I call mortuary mythology that modern Americans believe in. And the short description is, and this this may include, well, I think you're a little bit past it, but it includes most people. And it does not discriminate by age, race, sex, class, or uh, educational level. Americans know almost nothing truthful about what death, dying, and the economics of it really are. So one of the things that vexes people is this idea of the corpse as a health hazard, as, as a disease transmission vector. Um, this, except in certain instances, this is generally not true. Why do I care about this? Because the idea that being in the presence of a dead body can transmit an illness or a contagion to other people has been used very successfully by the funeral industry to force people to pay for chemical formaldehyde embalming, which they then claim, quote, sanitizes the body, which is also not true, but it's irrelevant. Um, Passage from your book, page 55. This is a discussion of smell being a warning of danger, but not an entirely reliable warning, something we have to think about. And you said, but the smell of vomit, carrion, or a human corpse, however, is not itself a hazard. And I was so impressed with that because I... I spent so much time 
combating that idea in both proposed state legislation that would require customers to pay for embalming when they didn't want to or had a religious objection. And I would have to try to get across to people. Do you you remember Hurricane Katrina, right? A lot of people died in Hurricane Katrina. I remember, I don't remember who the person was, but there was an actual health department official who got up on Good Morning America and said, we're worried about a cholera outbreak. These bodies are spreading disease in the rivers and da-da-da-da-da. And, and of course, and everyone believed, I'm sitting there, I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, I won't be as profane as I usually am. You damned idiot. You know, you, you are supposed to be the educated medical professional and you are talking about cholera the way people used to talk about flies generating spontaneously from meat. Right. Like if these dead people, first of all, there weren't that many dead people floating in rivers anyway. It wasn't rivers of corpses like this guy was. I mean, he was being totally histrionic. But disease does not jump off corpse. Corpses do not generate cholera arbitrarily simply because the corpse (laughs) is now in a state called death. If they didn't have cholera when they died, they're not going to shit it out. (laughs) Josh, what about the miasma? Thank you. (laughs) Heather, right here. Do you see Persistence of miasma theory. Okay, you anticipate me. This bothers me. We think we're modern, Heather, but we're not. We still believe in Victorian miasma theory, and we think it about a lot of things. It's subtle, but you can find it. We th- I actually think people express a lot of fear about corpses, and we'll return to that because you talked about that in another portion of the book, the lack of confrontation of the corpse and the reality of death. People are so afraid, and they express their fear by saying they're afraid that they will get sick. Now, I'm going to pretend I'm a therapist. I'm not, but I'm going to pretend that I'm one um, and say this is one of those instances where I believe that you believe you, but I don't believe you, okay? That's not your motivation. I think the real, yeah, and yes, I'm mind reading. Um, I think the actual fear is psychological and symbolic contamination. It's death getting its peanut butter in life's chocolate is a way to put it, right? Things are getting out of place. People are afraid to encounter the corpse because they're afraid metaphysically of death polluting life and making them think about something unpleasant. Um, no, I, I think that's right. I think we, we have so many false boundaries now. We, and because most of us don't run into death. Yes. You know, so many moderns haven't, haven't had to confront a corpse. And it means that we, we now believe our own press. Like, we, we actually kind of think we're immortal. Yes. And maybe the only risk is if we encounter it, it's catching. Like, death will be catching. Like yes. the state of being death will be catching as opposed to, well, I've got some modern science-ish story on top of it, which is that there's a pathogen there that's going to jump over to me. It's like, well, does it have fleas? And do the fleas have the plague? That's possible. But guess what? That's not how humans are dying now, right? It's not with right. ectoparasites that are vectoring deathly diseases. And it's not that it's impossible, right? There will be some yep. communicable pathogens that in life are communicable and in death are like Barely, maybe occasionally, if the right conditions, you know, yes. right? Occasionally, right? Like, we don't want to claim, like, this never, ever, ever happens. Right. But, but it is, like, t- it's tiny. No, in our- tiny. And, like, okay, you know, do we want some rules? Like, don't eat the brains of dead people. I mean, don't <laughs> eat the brains of live people. Like, don't, don't eat people Stick brains. Stick with the ever. live ones. 
like just don't just don't do it and because you know prion disease is real like this is that that's bad but that's not what people are talking about they're talking about just being kind of scared and i have you know another just anecdote doesn't show up in the book my father died uh 10 years ago this year okay. and uh he had actually been uh he had had an incredible cardiac event a year earlier was actually you know no heart be it for 20 minutes or more. We don't even know for how long. Uh, and this team of amazing first responders came and brought him back and they put him into this cold coma for 24 hours, yeah. the hospital did. And he, he came back, like it was extraordinary. He came back, we had a whole other year with him. And then a year later he, he died. And he was in the hospital slated for open heart surgery the next day. And uh, I, there's a whole lot of story here. I won't go into the whole story, but it's, it was extraordinary, and it was clear that it was happening. And I was I was with him in the hospital with my mom, and I called Brett and our boys in, who at that point were, as they would have been eight and six, yeah. and uh, they let everyone come into the ICU um, because it was clear this just it wasn't going to happen anymore. Yeah, uh, and and he died, and the staff came in right away to whisk us out, and I said no, like let us let us let us be here. Yes. Just stay here with father's body. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, I think we stayed, we, we you know, well overstayed our welcome in part because they don't, they don't want corpses in the ICU and they don't want grieving families. And, you know, we weren't making noise. I know. The, it would have been five of us were standing around, hands on, hands off, like, you know, holding each other, but also touching my father's now body. Yep. It helped and my mother in particular, but all of us know for sure that he was dead. Yes. And uh, and without that, it would have been, you know, the grieving process, which continues to this day, of course, yep. because we grieve forever those whom we love, uh, would have been more confusing because there would have been more of, that really happened? Is he really gone? Didn't I just see him in the street? Yes. And having had the hour or so with his, his corpse... Especially with basically, you know, the medical personnel at the door going like, get out of there. That's not it's not good for you. In fact, that's what one of the. Nurses oh, they are so wrong. They're so wrong. And I thought, well, if I, you know. Almost anyone else would have caved and said, oh, OK, I don't know. I'm great. I can't believe this just happened. I'm so I'm so overwhelmed. If you tell me I need to go, I need to go. Most people, even if they had the sense of actually think that I need to stay here with with my loved one's body be compelled otherwise by someone wearing care garb who said yeah. no that's actually not good for you you know this this confusion this this is one of the hyper novel things did we ever used to spend time with the bodies of our loved ones all the time uh, in, you know unless unless they disappeared on a hunt or something of course we did you know yeah. the, we we know that the neanderthals buried their dead right like this has been going on for so long yes it's our way of of remembering and I, I cheered again when I got to another section um, about grief. Um, around page 142, I just summarized it. Um, but you have a discussion of parents who believe that they are protecting children from grief by denying them the opportunity to go to the funeral, to participate in any of the obsequies. And I, I, fe I felt like we were sharing a mind because it, it drives me absolutely batshit um, to hear people say, oh, I'm going to let a little Johnny go to the funeral. 
I can tell you from experience, I mean, any any person who keeps her eyes open and has a family or has been around children and death can figure this out. But most of us specifically turn our mind off. But 20 years of working with people who are in grief, asking every question under the sun you could ever imagine, presenting scenarios that are as extreme as you could imagine. I am fully convinced, and I cannot be moved off this. Bad scientist. I can't imagine a circumstance in which I could be moved, but if other evidence came in, I could be. There. There's your disclaimer, listeners. Um, I am convinced that... uh, Should I let my child go to the funeral? Yeah. Um, Because do you want to know how you get children who get neuroses about death? They get it from you. They get it from watching mommy and daddy act scared act secretive, not tell them the truth that grandma's body stopped forever, never coming back, not letting them see grandma, not letting them touch grandma, not let, you know, all this sort of stuff. This is adult neurosis. This is not natural to children. I don't believe it's natural to children. Yes, of course, it will be frightening. Many things children learn for the first time are very confrontational and frightening. But if they have a family around them, they can fall back to when they need it and then get back up. You know, send those kids to the funeral. Do funerals for your pets. You know, and this, is, this is what childhood is for. Right. Yeah. This is, you know, if 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 you protect the children from all of the lessons will become adult in body only. They will, you know, reach 18 or 25 or 35 or, you know, on and on and on. Yeah, you're now aging, you're clearly in the body of an adult. But if you didn't have the developmental experiences by which you learned these critical lessons and and grief and death is one of the most important, but it's hardly the only one. Where do you expect them to learn it? Why do you expect that they will suddenly just tune in and be good at death? No one else in society is. Uh, and we, okay, it's frankly, it's an abdication of parental responsibility, and it comes in the guise of um, loving parenting. But it's yes. actually an abdication. It's a total abdication because what it's saying is, you know what? This is icky. I don't like this. This is making me uncomfortable. Maybe I'm grieving too. You know, maybe maybe it was you know, in this case, it was my father, and my children needed to grieve for their grandfather as well. If what you're doing actually is saying protect the children, what you're actually doing is saying. I want to make this, they're learning about death, someone else's problem. You know what? You're their parent. This is your responsibility to yes. take all of the opportunities that life throws at you and your children and, and allow them to learn from it, rather than protect them from it so that when they get out into the world, you can safely say, well, I, you know, I assume they're good now. Like, wh- how would they have become good? It's not a dragonfly. It's a human. Right? Yes. Like, it's, it's not a series of fixed yes. action patterns learn how to be human. We don't intuit how to be human. Absolutely. Well put. This is a good place to stop this first episode. Um, Listeners, uh, this conversation continues. Uh, Tune in for the next episode. We're going to have Heather back. Heather Hying, thank you very much for your time. Hey, Josh.